scripture lesson is Romans 5, verses 17 through 21. Romans 5, verses 17 through 21. Our subject is reigning in light. Reigning in light. And with this study, we conclude our year and a half analysis of the doctrine of salvation and its implications. Romans 5, 17 through 21. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. A while back, a London newspaper ran a questionnaire in its Sunday edition, and it asked its readers to fill it out and to mail it in. The gist of the questionnaire was their religious faith. What did they believe in? They asked how many went to church. The answer was that less than one in twenty even occasionally, ever went to church. They were asked, A, did they believe in heaven and hell? Two, reincarnation? Or three, do not know? The overwhelming majority voted for number two, reincarnation. In the United States, there's a difference as far as church attendance is concerned. Eleven in twenty, as against less than one in twenty in England, go to church in the United States. But unfortunately, they have no great evidence that their position is very different. The belief in reincarnation, again, is very strong in the United States. It's a very popular idea with many. Moreover, it is very significant how this idea is held in this country. And the implication is that perhaps the English attitude is not too different. One man who was reading a book about reincarnation was asked, did he believe there was any truth to it? And his answer, verbatim, was this. Well, 
I don't know. I'd rather believe in it than nothing. Hell, I don't want just to die. I'd like to have a second chance. Now, that answer was summed up as very, very indicative of the kind of response and reaction that was gained whenever there was a questionnaire of this sort. There are certain very important implications in this man's statement. First of all, the man said that he did not know the truth of the matter. But he also denied the relevance of truth. He frankly said, I don't know what the truth is on the subject. But he also said what was more important was, what do I want to believe? In other words, his criterion was pragmatic, and we should not be surprised at this. We have had now, for a good many years, the influence of pragmatism in American life. As a very militant philosophy in John Dewey, it captured, although it's still present, or previously present to Dewey, it captured American education. And so the test of truth was not, is it actually so in reality, but does it work for me? In terms of this, it can actually be held that a lie is the truth for me because it works. This man's test of truth was pragmatic. He very candidly admitted that he did not want to die and to have death and everything. But he didn't like the idea of hell. And so reincarnation gave him something which avoided hell and avoided death. Very convenient answer. But second, we must say that this man's answer was also man-centered, not God-centered. And this points to a very sorry fact. But today, anthropology has replaced soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation by the Savior. Anthropology is that doctrine which centers on man. When man talks about salvation today, whether he talks about it in the church or outside of the church, he is talking about anthropology, not theology. He is saying, this is what I need, not this is what God does. And so his interest is in life insurance, as I have said on previous occasions. He wants life insurance. And that's why he seeks salvation, whether it's in the doctrine of reincarnation or in the doctrine of certain so-called evangelical churches. He seeks what he has decided he needs. Humanism focuses on man. So that the emphasis in anthropology as it approaches and perverts the doctrine of salvation is on you need Christ or you need Krishna, not 
the Bible declares you are a condemned man under sentence of death. And you must stop and face the fact of utter, total condemnation. And then the offer of grace, which is totally sovereign grace. This is very different. This is not anthropology. It is theology. And there is a world of difference between the two. Then third, this man said, I'd like to have a second chance. I've heard this so many times, and it's a fraud. Every day, every man has a second chance, but he doesn't want it. I recall some years ago someone telling me that they were going out of town for the funeral of a friend, and I expressed my sorrow. They laughed. I said he's, he wasn't worth much alive. And he isn't worth much dead. And then they went on to tell me something about the man. And that it was a good thing he was gone and no longer a problem to his wife and family. And they said, I've known this man from the time he was a kid. And he said, you know, when he was 30, he was saying, if I were only 20, I would do things differently. And when he was 40, he would say, if I were only for a 30, I would do things differently. And when he was 50, he was saying the same thing about 40. And he died saying the same thing about 10 years or 15 years previously. He never wanted another chance. Men want only the opportunity to make excuses. This man had died a bumbler destroying every opportunity he had had. When he demanded a second chance, what he was saying was that he preferred a universe with no law or judgment, no causality, no consequence, which means no universe. Then finally, we must say about this man who said he wanted a second chance, and he liked the idea of reincarnation for that reason, that he was at least honest. He wanted the priority. He wanted ultimacy. He wanted to control his chances. It reminds me of an old reprobate I knew in Nevada a good many years ago who once said that, and he was half kidding, but he was more than half serious, he said, salvation would make sense. If a man could turn it on five minutes before hell. Now, of course, that's the idea that a sinner has of salvation. Something that is there for him to use when he needs it. It is anthropology, not soteriology. That kind of mentality is precisely the mentality of hell. It affirms the sovereignty, the ultimacy of man. But the context of the biblical doctrine of salvation, as we have seen in the past year and a half, is the sovereignty of God and the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now this is the context that St. Paul places it in. He does not, as he discusses salvation, place it in the context of myself and my needs. 
He places it in the context of two men, two humanity, the humanity, the race that is of Adam, and the humanity, the race that is born of Jesus Christ. The focus is off of me. I'm just one of a race, either of Adam or of Christ. And I must see myself in the context of what Adam did or in the context of what Christ has done. It's not my need. The emphasis is off of me. Then, as St. Paul goes on to discuss the significance of this contrast, these two humanities, he says that all, without exception, were made sinners by the fall of Adam. And when Adam fell from his calling, which was to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it, Instead of Adam reigning in the garden, now death reigned over Adam and over all the world. Condemnation, death, ensued from his fall. This is the inheritance of all, all St. Paul says, who are members of the humanity of Adam. The law, he says, increases offense. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. This is a very significant point. Because as man confronts God or is confronted by God in his sin, his attitude is, why is God making so much fuss about a little matter? Why is God making so much fuss about taking a fruit off the tree? Or about what I have done? But what the law does is to increase the offense by spelling out the details of the law. So that as man sees what sin is, he sees the depth of his iniquity. He sees at every point where he has transgressed. of sin, the clear totality of every sin, and also the implications of the totality of obedience, so that as man is confronted by the law, he can no longer say, why is God making so much fuss about the little matter? The enormity of sin, as Murray has pointed out, is emphasized when the law in its fullness is given. On the other hand, St. Paul tells us, we have Christ, the second Adam, the fountainhead of a new humanity. By his grace and the free gift of righteousness, man reigns in life. Whereas once man reigned in the Garden of Eden and then death reigned over him, now in this new humanity it is man who reigns rather than death. 
Christ gives his redeemed ones the justification which is unto life and issues in life. Men are made righteous. Grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, Dr. Murray has called attention to the very significant parallel and yet the very significant differences in verses 17 and 21. And this is an aspect of this passage that has too often been ignored. The word reigned is used four times. Twice with respect to the reign of death and twice with respect to our reign in Christ. But with a significant difference where the humanity of Christ the new humanity, the new race, the people of God are concerned. With Adam's sin, death reigns over man. And this reign of death is in time and in eternity. With the grace and the free gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ, man reigns in time and he reigns in eternity he reigns we are told in verse 17 in life and he reigns again we are told unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord Salvation, in other words, has as its implication reigning. The fall has as its implication the slavery of man and the reign of death over man. Now, St. Paul emphasizes the reigning in life and the reigning unto eternal life to stress the fullness of this reigning. This is a very important implication, a very important statement, because it strikes directly at the Manichaean element which has so extensively infiltrated the church. Manichaeanism is an ancient dualistic faith. Manichaeanism we find in ancient times that in an earlier form as Zoroastrianism, as Parsiism today. And its essential belief was that there were two gods, the god of light or of spirit and the god of darkness or of matter. You can take your choice between the two. Some would worship the one and some the other. And we have varieties of both in the history of dualism. But you had to say that the victory of the one was in one area. So the god of darkness or of matter alone could triumph in the world of matter. And if you worship the god of light and of spirit, you had to forsake the world of matter and of material things for the world of the spirit. When this entered into the church, 
and began to influence Christians, they began to do precisely that which Paul had predicted and condemned, forbidding to marry, forbidding the eating of meats, and so on. Why? Because those things belong to the false world of matter, and you had to give yourself to the world of spirit. You had to abstract yourself from one world and give yourself to the other. Moreover, one of the things that Manichaeanism, as it infiltrated and influenced the church, did was to affect the idea of Satan. So that Satan ceased to be the person that Scripture speaks about and became this other god. To illustrate, according to scripture, Satan is a creature. God created him. He's a fallen creature. Now, all creatures have purely local appearances. Now, God is a spirit. God is omnipotent and omnipresent. God is here in our midst. He is now also at every other point in the universe and also totally beyond. But I can only be here, no place else. If an angel of God were sent, which is an impossibility because we are no longer in the day of revelation, to appear before us, he would be here, he would be nowhere else. Now, Satan as a creature is not omnipotent nor omnipresent. And yet the commonplace idea that is promulgated by so many today and the idea that is so very thoroughly promoted by a book about Satan being alive and well on planet Earth is that Satan is somehow everywhere all the time. He's whispering in my ear and he's whispering in... Uh, Rajnav's here and in everybody's here all around the world and working on everybody. Well, of course, the plain fact is that you and I don't need Satan to give us ideas about sinning. We have enough ideas on our own. We are by nature fallen. Once Adam and Eve accepted the premise of Satan in the Garden of Eden, Humanity began to operate on that basis. The work of Satan was done. He, can, he has made his local appearances. He appeared to tempt various things and to tempt our Lord in the wilderness as a person. But he's nothing more than that. And he's not omnipresent. But Manichaeanism, you see, has worked to make him into another god, the god of the world of matter. So you surrender the world of history and of this life to Satan. And you say, we've got to be raptured out of this world where Satan is in order to be able to be truly the Lord. But St. Paul says that we reign in life 
by one, Jesus Christ. And we also reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. He emphasizes definitely the reign in time and eternity, the reign in the world of matter and in the world of spirit, the totality of reign. Just as the fall was a total fall, and the whole of man's being was involved in the fall, and death reigned over man totally. So now, man in Christ reigns in time progressively, reigns in eternity in perfection. Salvation is a total concept. It cannot be limited either to one area of life or to one sphere of creation. Not only is the conquest of all things an aspect of it, so that man truly reigns in life. But a new creation for Christ totally reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, is basic and essential to an understanding of the doctrine of salvation. And St. Paul said in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. He meant we are also kings. We reign. A conqueror, and Paul was using a familiar image from the Greco-Roman world of the conqueror who subjugated the enemies and came back to the capital for a triumphal reign, for a triumphal entry, to receive the approval of the emperor. And Paul said, we are like that. We are not only the conqueror, but we are kings in Christ. A royal priest. We are those who have been called to exercise dominion and subdue the earth. And in Christ, been redeemed to reign in life and in eternal life. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that we over whom death once reigned, now through the grace and the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ, reign in life, and has been called to be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Our Lord and our God, Awaken us to the glory of our inheritance in Jesus Christ, to our calling and our duty in him, that we might go forth, serving, magnifying, heralding thee, and bringing every area of life and thought into captivity to Jesus Christ our Lord.
In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. Yeah. Is that what? Yes, it is. Now, it isn't uh, something we can press to the point of saying everyone has a guardian angel. That's an unwarranted conclusion. But that God does provide guardian angels for his elect and is mindful of them in more ways than we can imagine, I think is very clearly taught in Scripture, so that we are under the protection of God. And the angels are literally messengers and servants. We are above them. We are the focal point of history. Yes, because uh, they are not, they cannot be invoked in that they have no power independently of God. Our prayers are always directly to God through Christ because all initiative, all power is in him. By trying to command a private without having any reference to the military rank. Uh, it's a poor illustration, but a private has to obey orders. He is in a chain of command. He doesn't obey you as a civilian if you give him an order. He goes to and fro, but always as a person with a local appearance. In other words, uh, I can go to and fro over the earth, but I'm always at a particular point. And Satan, every time he is spoken of in Scripture, is as a particular person in a particular place. So that he does go to and fro. But he is not everywhere at one and the same time. Yes. Demon possession is very real. But again, it is not Satan, but a particular demon. You see, we cannot say that uh, everyone, everywhere, is possessed by a particular demon at one and the same time. It's purely local, particular. Just as I cannot be in two places, no demon nor Satan can be in two places at one and the same time. This means that Satan's work is very limited. It means he doesn't know what is going to come to pass any more than you and I do. Any other questions? Yes. 
The school state letters were not trying to give a picture of what uh, the reality about uh, demons are, but a psychological analysis of how uh, sin operates in man. I think it's been some time since I've read them. There's a great deal of very uh, fine insight there. But uh, C.S. Lewis did not mean to imply that uh, junior devils are assigned to you or to me to operate in this particular way, but rather to illustrate how sin and temptation work in the mind of man. very conservative 
vaguely evangelical, the one thing being their peculiar ways of dress and speech and their pacifism. And to this day, there are elements in Quakerism which are little more than uh, a fundamentalistic uh, pietism except for their pacifism. Now, Penn was of the group that was uh, trying to gain respectability for Quakerism as against the earlier uh, uh, fanatics and uh, religious revolutionaries. What his personal position was in this respect, how far he went, I really don't know. But this was the background of uh, their movement, yes. The question is, did they put conscience before scripture? The answer is very clearly that many of them did. Their inner light was the most important thing in the world. It was the voice of God, so that they were ready to go to very great extremes. They were a part of the Anabaptist movement. And on the continent, some branches of the Anabaptist movement felt that in good conscience they could uh, practice polygamy, in good conscience they could do a variety of things that uh, both the law of man and the law of God prohibited. So that uh, in exalting conscience, what they were doing was to exalt themselves to a place of independence from God and man, to make themselves to be God. Yes. impossibility. For this reason, we have the illusion that the Indians and, uh, well, that this was a rich continent teeming with game and all you had to do was come here and you could live marvelously. This was a myth. This was especially a myth in the eastern half of the United States because unless you came to a lake or a stream, you could walk from the Atlantic across Illinois and never see the sun. The forest had grown so thick and so tall that life had become sterile. There were very few deer, very few rabbits, almost no game, and the Indians regularly, as I point out to my miserable population, starved to death. The Western Indians, until they got the horse from the Spaniards, could not hunt the buffalo, which was a very good source of meat. It was impossible. They, they rarely 
got along except on the most meager hand-to-mouth existence, and they starved to death regularly. Now, when the settlers settled and they it took capital, you had to figure throughout the entire period of colonization, whether it was in the East or the Middle West or the West, two years of capital to begin to earn an income. Because it took a lot of work. And this is still true today if you're starting a business. It takes a good two years before you can expect a return. Now, when they cleared the land, the grass began to grow, and uh, the deer and the uh, rabbits and other game began to increase. There was feed now. They hadn't been before because the forest prevented game from growing. And some of the national forests today have the least game in the United States because there's no selective cutting to enable the grass to grow and the game to abound. As a result, the Indians always moved to the areas where the white men were. And the result led to conflict. Now, if William Penn had not had the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians there in that area, there would not have been any possibility of... uh, living peaceably with the Indians, he let the Scotch Irish do the fighting for him. That's the uh, truth of the matter. Are there any other questions? Yes. Yes. Of him as the prince of this world because uh, in the humanity of Adam he rules in that his premises govern them. They are under the principle, ye shall be as God. Every man doing that which is right in his eyes, determining good and evil for himself. But the rule of Satan is the rule of anarchy, you see. That's the premise of Satan. But what does it lead to? Anarchy. And what is hell? Hell is pictured as a place of anarchy. So the rule of Satan is the rule of his premise that it always, instead of being a unified rule, is a total collapse into anarchy in which every man follows that same premise. Now they are one in sin and death reigns over them. But the idea that uh, either hell or Satan can have a unified realm is to ascribe to the world of Satan the attributes of God. It's an impossibility. Because once you think logically on Satan's premise, every man is his own universe. Every man his own God, he shall be his God, knowing, determining for yourself what constitutes good and evil. So, uh, you don't have a unified order. You have a collapse of order. And this is why, as people begin to adopt that premise, what do they do? They wage war against the idea of law and order. Now, very few people are aware of it, but one of the uh, two things that Marx hated the most was anarchism. 
The other, of course, is God. He opposed God and he called Christianity the opium of the masses. His collected works are full of savage, hateful diatribes against Christianity. But Marx, as an intelligent man, knew that if you eliminate God, then you have to say there is nothing that's logical except every man being his own God. Total anarchy in the universe. But he said, this isn't practical, therefore we have to have communism and the total dictatorship of the proletariat. But Sterner, Max Sterner, in the book Ego and the Ego and His Own, said this idea was uh, half Christian. So that anyone who held to it was saying, I don't want God, but I'm going to be a Christian without God. So he said, the logic of it is to abolish all law, all order, and to say that everything, whether it's murder or incest or rape or anything, is permissible. Then we truly have abandoned God. Well, Marx wrote uh, volume after volume in a savage attack against Turner, and a just pure hatred because he could not argue with the logic of it, you see. Because it is logical. Sterner was right. Now, the significant point is that in recent years, the new left has gone back behind uh, Marx to Sterner. Also, the conservatives have gone to Sterner to a very great extent. Your libertarian-style conservatives so that today the ideas of Sterner, total anarchism, govern the new left, they govern the sexual revolution, they govern the writers of pornography, they are threats to the Soviet regime so that they are very, very hostile as Marx was to this new wave of anarchism. But the liberals and the Marxists really have no answer except pure hatred for this uh, whole tendency because they've logically taken the satanic premise and carried it to its end conclusion. This is why, you see, evil cannot triumph. It destroys itself. It leads to total fragmentation, atomization, Every man doing his own thing. Now that's the triumph of Satan. Every man his own God. But it also means the total collapse of all things. It's interesting that uh, the Marxists in this country say next to nothing. It's almost unknown that uh, Marx spent so much time and effort writing against Turner. They don't like to call that atten attention to that for the reason that Marx had to admit in the process that Turner was right. But that pragmatically, it was destructive of atheism, which it is. They don't like to concede to that. Marx did have to concede that.
At our time is up, let's bow heads for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.